previous lives of Dorothy Wordsworth have portrayed her as self-effacing, almost a vanishing point. Yet Coleridge compared her emotional sensitivity to an electrometer, and Thomas de Quincey described her as the very wildest person I have ever known. As Frances Wilson told me, nowhere was her emotional complexity more on display than on the day of her brother William's wedding. It had been a day she'd been building up for, for uh, about about three years. As long as she'd known that William was going to get married, she'd been waiting for that particular event. And so it, it, it took on a huge amount of kind of loaded and over-determined significance in her mind, to the, to the point of collapsing in, a, in this sort of strange trance-like state that she was in at the same time that the marriage was going on. It was also, I mean, it was, a, it was a moment of great ambivalence for her because she was happy and miserable at the same time. And so the way I sort of describe it in the, um, in the journal, it was a marriage and a funeral. But I think, you know, I think it's like this with all of one's friends and relations marriages. You know that it's the ending mm. of something enormously important in, in your relationship with them. They're going to yes. go and leave you. And, uh, and, and I know, I, th- I think I sort of identified with it quite a lot. Not that I had a relationship with my brother or anything like she did, but I remember with both of my brother's marriages feeling that it was a sense of ending. Mm. Because me. she says in the journal she saw two men, I think, coming back up the path. Yes. And yes. she knew it was over, and it's she ambiguous knew it was over. It's what she's ra- talking about. Yeah, and it's an interesting moment, because the way she describes it in the journals is so extraordinary. The most shocking moment for her of that whole day is looking out of the window and seeing, because everything for Dorothy Wordsworth is organised around seeing. She can only believe something if she's seen it, I and mean, she's a very, very visual person. And when she says, I looked out of the window and saw them coming to tell me it was over, and it was over, what does she mean? It was over, and it's what exactly was over? The wedding was over. Her life was over. Was over, and then she has this moment of terrible, terrible realization when what she sees confirms that it's over. Her relationship with William is over. But that's not nearly as strange as what happened before. What, yes, what preceded it was <laughs> yes. of, I mean, of equal ha- or greater intensity. What happened before was so extraordinary. It was actually scored out of the journal by um, either by Dorothy or by William or by Mary Hutchinson or by a subsequent, um, a subsequent editor who just didn't want readers of um, these journals to see this. But what Dorothy describes in about three sentences is this strange kind of early morning ceremony where before William goes off to get married to Mary Hutchinson, he comes into her room at the farm and she says she, that he takes from her finger the wedding ring which she's been wearing all night, which is quite interesting. You know, it's sort of, I certainly didn't wear my brother's <laughs> wedding ring all night. And slips it from her finger onto his finger. And then she slips it off his finger and back onto her mm. finger. And so it's as if they're marrying one another. And then um, she says, he blessed me fervently. Which is a strange, sort of, a strange expression. What What's a fervent blessing? I mean, if you think of a blessing as being something without any fervency. It sounds, sounds sort of weirdly sort of erotic and she says that he then he then leaves the room which she doesn't ever describe him taking the ring off mm. her finger by the way you just assume so, yeah, that this has, has happened and that this same ring has now gone on Mary Hutchinson's finger but it's a very and it's a very strange thing to write and obviously an extremely embarrassing thing to write and you can see why you know if Wordsworth scored it out it's because he couldn't bear for Mary Hutchinson to know mm. or if the, a subsequent reader scored it out it was because it's not what anyone wants to think of as being the domestic life of William Wordsworth, mm. who we see as someone who represents, you know, sort of home and hearth and order 
and patriarchy rather than a kind of incestuous chaos. Yes. And as a result of that, perhaps, Dorothy in previous biographies has been seen as a casualty and a virgin yes. and someone who's cold and yes. sort of closed up. And I wondered to what extent you felt you were sort of rescuing her from her previous biographers in this in this book because your view of her is very different from that. Well, I um, oh, I feel as if I um, she really does need rescuing. And what's I mean, what's extraordinary, I think, about the way she's been represented in biographies, either of her alone or of um, group biographies with the other romantics, is that she's gone through some kind of biographical lobotomy, whereby she's been stripped of having any unconscious life, any sexuality, any desires of her own. She's just she just is William Wordsworth's unconscious life, and you can see that the reason this has happened is because she had all three in abundance. She had an enormous amount of unconscious life, desire and sexuality, but it was all, they were all orientated towards her brother, which is of course fantastically inconvenient mm. for, <laughs> for Wordsworthians. And that, that doesn't mean to say that her relationship with, with William was, um, was consummated or even sexual, but there's no doubt at all, and I, I think it almost certainly wasn't, but I think there's no doubt at all that she fixed her sexuality and libido on him and never mm. moved on. And so she's been she's been represented as a very safe and twee figure precisely in proportion to the extent to which she's dangerous. I think yeah. she's a very dangerous and restless and wild figure and um, she's an extremely disruptive force in um, in romanticism and in the Wordsworth home. And so she's been um she's been sanitized, mm. I think. And do you think the degree of that that fixing on William is in part due to the losses that she sustained as a young child because her mother died when she was seven. She was sent away from home, away from her father, away from her four brothers. And so loss was kind of was kind of written into her story right from the start. I, th- I think absolutely without without any doubt at all that's what happened. That she was her home was her family home was broken up in such a violent and completely unexpected way. She was the only daughter of five children. She had four. She had four brothers, and her her mother went away to London to see friends and came back and died. And suddenly, Dorothy hadn't only lost her mother, but she'd lost her family home as well, because it was apparently her mother's dying wish that Dorothy be raised by a cousin of hers in Halifax, which was completely the other side of the country to to Cockermouth, where they were living. So Dorothy lost her brothers and her father and her family home and her mother all at once and went age seven to live with this very kind aunt who had another brood of sort of orphaned relations living with her as well. And I think the sense of... uh the sense of violence she never quite got over. She, her birthday was on Christmas Day. She was never invited back to the family home. She never went back for Christmas or for her birthday. She seemed to have been actually forgotten by them all. So when she met, after her father died, she went and lived with some very unsympathetic grandparents in Penrith and she met up with her with her brothers again, but it was with William that she bonded and I think then there was a sense of absolute urgency that they must not separate ever again. And they had to kind of recreate the Eden of their childhood. Mm. And I, I think that often happens, you know, with orphans who have been mm. separated as children. That there's a you know, that when when they reunite, they, they don't want to part again. And also there's quite an erotic attachment mm. as well, which is sort of Understandable, I think. Mm. So moving into Dove Cottage was kind of recovery of that Eden. That was the yeah. moment for which she'd been longing. I think it was it was quite a regressive move, actually. I mean, they talked about you know planning the future, but actually they were repairing the past. And and William talks about Grasmere Vale as um as like a mother's uh, welcoming, enveloping arms, embracing their new heels and fold me in. You know, he wanted 
he wanted to feel that the home was a kind of was a was a sort of mother's breast if you like and i love the idea of the dove you know it's such a maternal image kind mm. of peace peaceful image and so when the two of them moved there it's as if they were playing they were playing at um at being children together in an ideal an ideal romantic situation which which really did sort of resound with so many of the 18th and early 19th century novels about um, brothers and sisters growing up in the wilderness together in a wonderfully kind of sensitive and intuitive way and they were living out this quite sort of self-conscious kind of literary fantasy I think. And what part did Dorothy's writing play in, in this whole setup? Well, she never saw herself as a writer, and she was quite adamant that um, she didn't want to be seen as a writer because she didn't want to be in any way kind of on Williams, you know, treading in Williams' space. But she started to write when they started to live together. And before they moved to Dove Cottage, she kept a journal when they were living in Elf Foxton in Somerset. She kept a journal which was quite extraordinarily strong. I mean, the writing was very, very powerful. And obviously she'd been praised for this writing. And so when she decided to start writing again in Dove Cottage, she was expecting praise. She wanted to please William. But what the, the writing takes on a quite an interesting role because she started to write not because they moved to Dove Cottage together, but because their life there would one day end. And she started her journal on the day that William left Dove Cottage. They'd been there for six months. William leaves Dove Cottage to walk to Gallow Hill Farm near Scarborough in order to propose to Mary Hutchinson and Dorothy knows that her days are numbered mm. this Eden that she's living in is going it's going it's going to be it's going to be over quite soon this particular heaven and so she decides to write this journal and she says she's going to write it to give William pleasure but in fact <laughs> it's a strange form of pleasure mm. because really what she's telling him is how much agony she feels about him going and and that the post hasn't come yet, and she's waiting, waiting, waiting for him to come back. And it, I think it's quite an aggressive act, really. And, so, and then the journal takes on a kind of momentum of its own, where it's partly an act of... Um, it's partly elegiac, it's partly a portrait, it's partly still life, it's partly a gift for William, it's partly in a kind of aggressive act towards William. It documents kind of almost accidentally, you know, her gradual breakdown before the marriage, but it also describes the oscillation of power between William and Dorothy, how he yeah. has it one day and she has it the next, and he's ill one day and she's ill the next. And so what seems to emerge from the pages of the journal is uh, they're not two separate people, they're one person. Mm. And what <clears throat> she's feeling about the marriage is, isn't a kind of common or garden jealousy, it's an incredibly complicated sense of separation. And you say it's kind of quite aggressive in some ways, the way she makes it clear to William but in other ways it's, it's done in quite an encoded way and it's done through pathetic fallacy or sort of yes. objective correlative so you have to kind of know how to read those things yes. because I mean otherwise you could think of her as, as simply an observer of the natural world. I know I know and I, I have to be very careful here because I mean I, I'm not you know an observer of the natural world myself <laughs> so <laughs> it could look like I've completely missed the point of the journals but I do read them metaphorically and I know that people like my, my mother and my grandmother both loved Dorothy Wordsworth's journals and they are observers of the natural world and that's how I was always told mm. you know that's how they were introduced to me you know that no one described a celandine like Dorothy Wordsworth but when I read her journals I didn't think she was describing a celandine I thought she was describing 
a moment of fear mm. or she was describing resistance to change or she was describing desperately wanting to be still. I saw it as, um, as something else, that the journals were looking inwards rather than outwards and so it, they're not I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far as to say they're entirely metaphorical but obviously because Dorothy Wordsworth was romantic you know nature took on a very mm. symbolic kind uh, symbolic importance for her you say at one point I think you compare her to Mary Shelley and you say Mary Shelley had a very explicit desire to kind of go into her own psyche and yes. with a lighted torch and really reveal things and Dorothy's approach was not at all like that. Oh gosh, it wasn't, no. It wasn't, there was no sort of self-conscious no. sort of project to um, to reveal her, her own sort of inner turmoil and depths. Oh no, that's absolutely right. I mean, what, what's striking about the, uh, the journals almost straight away is the absence of ego there. And you can see that obviously in the in the economy, the psychic economy between William and Dorothy Wordsworth, he had the self and he had the ego. And I think her sense of self and ego was sort of located in him, really. So mm. she describes herself as a very empty person. And that she only comes into focus in the journals when he's not there. So when, when she describes William going away, suddenly she'll talk about I and her subjectivity will appear. But when William comes back, she disappears like a badger back underground. It's very curious how little self-searching she actually does. She doesn't see herself as having, as having any inter anything interesting to say at all about her own mind or actually really about other people's minds. <laughs> she doesn't record at any point a conversation between Wordsworth and Coleridge, even though they were probably having the most interesting conversations that anyone had had for a hundred years, you know, about what they were going to do with um, poetry. And they were two of the most intellectually stimulating men ever. Mm. And she, but she doesn't note it down. She'll note down that, that you know, the, the sky was overcast that night. Mm. And um, she won't, uh, she won't note down either, you know, what inspired any of any of William's ideas, any of his thoughts, or, 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 or what her responses to any of these poems are. She's, she's very resistant to, to people. Mm. She's scared of people. She likes things. And yet we know that she wa it wasn't that she was insensitive to these things, because Coleridge, I think, described her as an electrometer, so she's yeah. a sort of super sensitive yeah. recording kind of yes. presence, some, someone who really vibrates yes. in tune with the people around her. Yes. It's, it's very interesting to compare... To compare the way that Dorothy comes across in the journals with what people said about her, because as yeah. you say, I mean, Coleridge said that she was this, the perfect electrometer, and she had, and she had this, you know, her taste was just, her taste was absolutely spot on, and everyone, um, everyone praised her for her responsiveness. That Dorothy's responses just summed up what was fashionable about yeah. being a romantic. Then she had this sensibility. She cried when she first heard the sea, and she when she was a child, and she cried as an old lady when she'd been ill for a long time and hadn't seen garden flowers, and then was taken out into the garden. So she sort of she responded kind of immediately to things. But what you don't see in the journals is any of this response. Yeah. There are no responses in the journals to anything. And also she's described by Coleridge and Hazlitt and De Quincey and Wordsworth as having this kind of gypsy-like wildness about her which is not there in the journals that there's nothing wild in the journals at all they're very very safe and she can take I mean it's they're astonishingly conventional in terms of she doesn't go beyond the remit of what's expected of her as a woman at all there's nothing unexpected hmm. and so it's a, it's an interesting piece of controlled writing
considering how uncontrolled and private journal writing is actually meant to be. Mm. You should let yourself respond freely and be wild in this kind of writing, but not Dorothy. Well, one, one interesting counterfactual question that I found forming in my mind was if the journal had been suppressed, if the family had destroyed the journal or somehow it, it had been lost to us, what kind of view of Dorothy Wiseworth would we have? Because, of, as you say, all the external impressions of her were of, of wildness and passion and spontaneity. That's re- it's really interesting to think of that. Yes, I think that had the had the journals been lost, Dorothy Wordsworth would have would be represented to us now as a much more interesting person. It's because of the journals and the kind of powerful misreading they've had, or the the suppressed mm. way in which she's um, she's been read, that she's been represented as such a kind of such a Victorian. But yes, yeah, I think she'd have come across as a much more Bronteish figure. Mm. Certainly, without the journals. But even if the journals had disappeared, the question of incest would still have been one that yeah. was discussed because it was discussed in her own time, yes. I think, wasn't it? Yes. No, that's right. It was. Uh, everyone gossiped about it. De Quinty said even as far away as London, people were talking about what on earth the relationship was between Dorothy and William. And you can see why, because it was certainly an odd one. And he, I mean, he had a... He had the habit, you know, sort of kissing her full and on the lips <laughs> when he met her or parted from her. And I, I don't think it was just that, though. It was the fact that they seemed to be sharing sort of one mind together. Mm. And they lived together in such extraordinary intimacy that it sort of, it, they didn't seem to have any sort of boundaries between them. And people couldn't work out what that relationship was about. And it, it was so, it was so emotional. I don't think it was incestuous in mm. any straightforward sense of the word though although it is quite it's quite a difficult one because you know at what point does your love of a sibling become an incestuous love is it only when you when you actually have physical transgressive physical contact with them which I I don't think Dorothy and William did I think their love for one another was extremely odd and strange and without doubt sexual but whether it was ever consummated you know, I I doubt, and mainly because I think that in in order to in order to feel a kind of sexual desire for someone, you have to have a certain amount of distance from them. And Dorothy and William Wordsworth didn't have that distance. They saw themselves as aspects of the same person. They were kind of like a hybrid, inward-looking form. Mm. And I just can't see that. <laughs> I can't see how that would have worked mm. kind of sexually between them. But uh, also, I think that. I think that the closer William Wordsworth got to someone, the less clearly he was able to see them. Mm. And he was so close to Dorothy that she was just a kind of vague idea for him in the end. I, I, don't, I don't think he saw her as a, as a body at all. Mm. I think it, 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 had, they had, had they actually had a sexual relationship for which we could find the evidence, their relationship would be much, much easier to understand. Mm. Like yeah, Byron and his sisters. Because yeah. it'd be closed and settled. It'd be closed and settled. It'd be sort of aberrant, but, but, yes. but sort of decided upon. One of the reasons that people can't really deal with their relationships is because we don't know what to do with siblings in general. You know, we know how to read the relationship between the sort of child and the parents, but siblings have been sort of very, very under-examined, especially siblings who love each other. We can do kind of siblings who hate each other, and we can sort of, we've got to a certain... You know, we've covered a certain distance psychoanalytically with sibling rivalry. But sibling love just leaves people completely confused. Mm. And and everyone feels sort of rather uncomfortable about it. Possibly because, you know, the love you have for your 
siblings is, you know, your first really great love. Mm. And of course, you know, you, you kind of carry that with you all your life. And do you think it's ultimately a futile question to ask whether she lived a life of self-sacrifice or of self-realisation? No, I think that's the big question, really. And I, it's, it's, it's the question I was wondering all the way through writing this book. I, I just don't, I just don't know. I think, I, I can't, I can't conclude there. I can't conclude there. Sometimes I think very powerfully it was all self-sacrifice. And at other times I think she had the most extraordinary life. And it was so, so radically different and better in terms of self-realisation than any other woman's life at that time. When you think about what she could have been doing, and she had she stayed, had she not sort of practically eloped with William, she'd have stayed as a helper in a relations home, like Fanny Price in Mansfield Park, as a kind of poor relation, looking after babies and teaching Sunday school, and being, you know, probably sort of turning down marriage proposals from quite dreary men, and leading a very conventional and ordinary life, when what she had was this she had a couple of years of extraordinariness 